All right, why don't you turn to Luke 17, please? Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And the message is entitled, Essential Truths for Disciples. No one can be a disciple of Jesus and do the things he requires unless they are completely dependent on him to enable them. Being a Christian and a disciple is synonymous. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. It's impossible. The word disciple simply means a learner or pupil. It appears 268 times, all found in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts. For that reason, Jesus declared in Matthew 11, 18 um, on down, uh, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is, uh, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The way a person becomes a disciple is through the offer of salvation as a person repents and they become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus enables the believer to become more like him as we are joined as an ox to a yoke that we are able to do the will of God and not our own and we follow his direction, not our own. We do this through growth and study, becoming transformed. This begins this lifelong transformation through growth development and maturity. Um, Paul, to the Colossians and the Ephesians, he says this, that we are to put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So being Christians now, we can be what we weren't before. You cannot say you're a Christian and still be living the same way you used to. You cannot have the same values. You cannot have the same worldview. It's impossible. Otherwise, why need to be a Christian? Jesus has declared some radical things in relationship to being his disciple. Let me just mention some. In Luke 19, 23, he says, You cannot live for yourself. Listen. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Being a Christian is not being religious. It's not being spiritual. It's not being one thing for a while and then switching. It's being a Christian all your life, following Jesus. Not living for yourself. You cannot have a divided heart, Jesus said in Matthew or in Luke 9.62. He says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Always looking back, longing, kind of like Lot's wife. We'll look at that tonight. Have hearts in the world, have hearts in Christ. And you cannot value a person, any person, more than Jesus. You've got to love him first. Luke 14.26 and 27 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Pretty shocking statements. The hate and the love does not mean literal hate towards your mother, father, and husband, and so on and so forth. But you've got to love God first so this way you'll, know, you'll be able to love your husband and wife the right way. In other words, you cannot value any person more than Jesus Christ. You must love God with all your mind, heart, and soul. And then the second follows, you love your neighbors yourself. Then you're going to love them in the right place, in the right manner. Now, in view of all this, Jesus now teaches disciples four lessons for effective service to him in preaching the gospel. Here in chapter 17, 1 through 10. Let me read for us. Um, Luke 17 I have Matthew here Luke 17 1 through 10 says then he said to his disciples it is impossible that no offenses should come but woe to him through whom they do come it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and, and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones Take heed to yourselves. 
If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted into the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having seven, uh, having a servant plowing and tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant? Because he did the thing that were commanded him? I think not. So, likewise you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. As we've seen, Luke couples things together with a common theme and to give lessons. And this is no different here. Jesus teaches disciples four lessons to be effective in service as they preach the gospel. These are the four. First, the warning against offenses, verse 1 and 2. Second, the command to forgive, verse 3 and 4. Third, the need to live out our faith, 5 and 6. And fourthly, the danger of pride in serving. It begins with the severest of all. I can't find a severe warning in the New Testament than these two verses. The warning against offenses. Look at verse 1. The certainty of offenses in this world by man is declared. Then he said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. Jesus is speaking in the context of what has preceded, the gospel being preached. Some say there's no connection here between what precedes and what follows, but they're absolutely wrong. The entire section, as we've noted, is one Sabbath day that began in chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 17, verse 10. All of it is one day. The Lord is preaching the gospel and tax collectors and sinners are coming to him, and he's saving them, receiving them, and eating with them. So the Pharisees and scribes are murmuring against Jesus, Luke 15, 1 and 2, and 16, 14 tells us. These religious men were constantly opposing Jesus and the gospel, as we've seen, attempting to turn people away from Jesus and the kingdom of God to be saved. Yet they declared themselves to be religious and knowing God. Sometimes the greatest opposition to the gospel is from within the church itself. The liberal church. The false church. Jesus speaks now to his disciples, but again the Pharisees are still in the background. As we've seen through this whole day, he speaks to the Pharisees, then to the disciples, then to the crowds. They're all there. Now, notice Jesus said to his disciples, there would always be people attempting to turn seekers and young believers from Christ. The affirmation is stated by the double negative, the first being, it is impossible. The phrase, it is, is in the indicative present active. It is a constant truth. It has been happening ever since Jesus came. It happened in the Old Testament, tried to take people away from Yahweh. The truth being declared as constant in the impossibility, the inadmissible, unallowable possibility of it not existing. The second is that no offense should come. Now, if we live in a perfect world, then there might be a possibility, but this world is tainted. It's corrupt. 
So the negative here, the second one, no offenses, affirms the certainty of the offenses taking place. The two negative statements give emphasis to the fact that it is impossible for offenses not to come in this fallen world full of sinful people. We offend, we trespass, we insult, we shoot our mouths, we do what we want. That's sinful man. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. The phrase to come is an infinitive in the era's active tense. So they will take place. There will be no doubt. I'm sure that you can think of people and events and things that were said or done in your own lifetime as a Christian that will fit right into this very severe charge and sin against heaven and God and the gospel. The word offense, scandalon, means to the removable stick or the trigger to a trap. Maybe you, when you grew up, you were trying to catch little frogs or whatever, and you put a little box, you put a stick there, and you put a stick on it, and you go behind a bush, pull it. That's the word. You want to trap. You want to ensnare. You want to kill. The word is used frequently in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, to translate the Hebrew word to catch or to trap or to snare. Just as I said, Joshua 23.13, Judges 2.3 is two of the passages. But it also is used for the word stumble. Leviticus 19.14, 1 Samuel 25.31. So they both go together. The two became one to mean the cause of ruin or to bring a person to ruin, a stumbling block. If you work in construction, you know that a trip step is anything under three inches because you don't see it. It's not high enough and you trip over it. Okay? It causes you to stumble. You go flat on your face. The text communicates the act of entrapping a person in sin and causing the ruin of their soul eternally and reject the gospel of God. This is one of the severest charges and sins that people, a person can commit. Sin is too destructive and so destructive that Jesus said it would be better for you to enter into hell or into heaven maimed if your right hand offend you, cut it off. Now, he isn't speaking literally because you've got a left hand and it'll do the same thing. But he's saying it would be better off that you would enter heaven maimed than to enter hell completely whole in body. That's how severe sin is. We, we, we sometimes forget about sin, the destructiveness, the, 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 the heartbreak, the, the ruin that it does. And it's almost like the church today is so liberal that it's just kind of, it's very secular, very cultural. It's hard to distinguish between Christians and people in the world. The warning of corrupting is also stated in Matthew in the stumbling stone, Matthew 18, 7. Now, notice the end of verse 1 and 2, the certainty of judgment for the offenses um, is by the hand of God. Um, the person attempting to derail one from the gospel or to tempt a young believer to get involved in sin will be under divine retribution. Listen to the words, but woe to him through whom they do come. Now they're going to come. No one can stop that. Man is dead set to live and act and say and speak against God and to thwart whatever they can. But woe to that man the word but marks the sharp contrast here. The impossibility of the offense not happening, yet the personal responsibility and accountability for the offense is definitely indicated. The person is noted by God, and the person will be held responsible by God. This is God's verdict over an enemy of God, an enemy of the gospel. Therefore, they're going to be an enemy of Christians. 
the word woe, as you know, is a verdict of judgment. 47 times we find the New Testament, all of them indicate divine judgment. Notice the person that dies before committing such a heinous crime would be under a less severe divine judgment. Listen to his words. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned into the sea. The nature of the death is gruesome as you look at it and read it. The form of death is very graphic in picture. A millstone hung around the neck like a necklace. A huge thing. The millstone here, there's two type of millstones. Some of you were in Israel with us. There's a hand, uh, a hand mill that you just, where you have small stone that you grind. And then this is a huge one that it stands vertical with a hole in the middle and a pole through and they tie an ox and a donkey to it so it goes around in a circle to, to grind the wheat and the corn. This is the one that he's talking about. Notice the benefit is indicated by the word better. It means profitable. It'd be more advantageous if a person died drowning in the sea, his body being unrecoverable, than to ever commit this sin. Wow. This is Jesus speaking. This type of death being preferable to severe judgment of God for the crime of tempting and corrupting a believer to sin. Here's a comparison. Then that he should offend one of these little ones. The little ones are those seeking the kingdom of God and young believers. It's not literally talking about just children, but those who are coming to God in childlike faith. The tense of the offense is expressed in the error subjunctive, a single act in the future. And there's one act at a time against the sin, against the saint, against the gospel, against God, by those who think themselves that they are God. Jesus rebuked his disciples for arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, he took a child to himself. And in Luke 9, 48, he says, Who receives, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And he who is least among you shall be great. This is why God will judge Satan with the severest judgment. Because he entices the first believers to sin and ruin them for eternity. Thank God God made a way for repentance. There is no redemption for Satan. Gehenna was made for Satan and his angels. The entire world system and people are influenced under corruption and sin. And those who were in the world, as you and I were, we lived that way. We, we, we hopefully got, none of you ever did that. If you did, you're saved. He's forgiven you. You've repented. But it's bad enough that we, we enjoy corrupting others in certain areas. Whether it be drinking, getting loaded, or sex, or whatever. We, we love corrupting people. We thought it was funny. But this is severe. This is eternal. This is for the gospel. By one man's sin into the world and death through sin, Romans 5.12 says. So every time a woman brings a baby into the world, she brings another rotten sinner. That baby will sin. That baby will just... Thank God God didn't give that baby with teeth and muscles and everything else. We, you'd be dead. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. 1 John 2.16. That's the gates by which everything comes in. There are always individuals that will cross this line to entice or corrupt those walking with Jesus to the ruin of their souls eternally. Otherwise, a warning would be useless. Top on the list are public school teachers administrators, university professors who attack and destroy the faith of believers that go to their classrooms. 
God has a special place for them. Secular humanists, atheists, agnostics who deceive believers to believe in the goodness of man. They mock at sin and the fact that God exists. A moralist teach there is no right or wrong corrupting the believer away from Christ. Now there is a choice by the person who is being deceived, but the greater judgment falls on the deceiver. And that's what the focus is on the text here. Those who convince believers that the word of God has mistakes, it cannot be trusted, falling for the same lie as Satan told Eve, has God said, this attack is from within the church, more than outside the church today. Those that teach a postmodern Christianity, redefining Christianity, the church and the Christian, making it more cultural and worldly, drinking, cussing, being sexually involved, blurring the holy from the profane, secularizing the church. The Bible calls it the Church of Laodicea, though it has many names throughout history, the different movements. <laughs> it's all the same. If you're still living and doing the things you used to, either you've gone back to the world or you've never been born again, one of the two. There must be a drastic change in your life. To cause the believer to turn away from Jesus and to go back into the world. This is their goal. And people work hard at it. Listen to what Jesus says about such men. Matthew twenty three thirteen says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Wow. They're coming in and they stop them. Through entrapping them, through enticing them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. They end up being worse than you. Wow. What judgment. This is one of the most severest Proclamations of judgment in the New Testament. The warning against offenses is from turning believers away from the gospel. Second lesson he teaches them as they're ministering the gospel is the command to forgive, verse 3 and 4. The responsibility to confront is on the innocent Christian, the innocent party, beginning of 3. Usually we say, well, you know, I didn't do nothing. Let him come to me. No, no, no. If somebody did something to you and you're aware of it, you're the innocent party, you're responsible to go. That's what the scriptures teach. Notice the warning is to all believers, take heed to yourselves. The phrase take heed means to beware, alert, and attentive. So we're to be alert of what's going on, aware of what people are saying and doing. Not to judge them, not to think that you're better, but to know what's happening and how you should respond. The phrase could be reflexive looking back to uh, make sure they did not entice and stumble uh, any believer to sin themselves. But the phrase also could be reciprocal of mutual responsibility to each other, looking out for each other. It's a transition between verse 1 and 2 into 3. Now notice the tense is the imperative present here, active. It is to be ongoing at all times. We're to be alert. We're to be watching. Those in the body of the church still have a sin nature. And we can still sin and offend each other. Sometimes we do it unknowingly. Sometimes we do it knowingly. But we're not to just shine it on. We're to confront one another. Now there's a way to confront. We'll deal with that. But we're not to just say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. It does matter. If you don't deal with your children and just let things go, things are going to matter. 
If you don't deal with things with your husband and wife, things are going to matter. If you don't deal with people, things are going to matter. There's to be a mutual accountability in the church. Notice the condition is a real situation, not hypothetical. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. The word sin simply means to miss the mark. The sin is not always deliberate, as I said, though at the times it is. It's a trespass, willful. The tense is subjective error is active. He or she has committed an offense against you. It's very, very clear. There's no question here. Now, the responsibility of the one sinned against is to approach the sinning person. We are not to ignore it again. The word brother, Adolphus, literally means born of the same womb. We're in the family of God. We're in the same church body. Even if we don't go to the same church locally, but if we're Christians, we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. The word rebuke simply means to censure or to charge someone with their failure. This is an imperative command, by the way, not a suggestion. We're commanded. So, when somebody offends you, does something against you, and you know it, and you don't confront them, you're disobeying the Lord. Simple. Now notice the accountability to reconcile lies on both Christians. And if we repent, forgive him. The one being confronted has the duty to acknowledge his or her sin. If he repent. This means he did acknowledge it. The condition is the reality of the goal. They were confronted and they repented. He or she repents. They change their mind about their sin. Sometimes a person may be completely ignorant. I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I did that. I, I didn't realize that that... Please forgive me. It's settled. The errors tends to indicate the genuine act of repentance here. There's no question about the repentance here. Now notice repentance means they acknowledge your charge. They confess their sin and ask forgiveness and abandon their sin. Not justify their sin, not excuse their sin, but owning up to their sin. I'm sorry. For what? For lying about you. For lying to you. For deceiving you. For slandering you. Articulate what you're sorry about. Don't just say sorry, I'm sorry. When you go before the Lord, you say, Lord, I'm sorry. What? Sorry for what? Now he knows. But God wants you to articulate what you're asking forgiveness for, right? And so the same should be towards us. Sometimes the repentance of people is an insult. It's a greater insult. It's adding insult to injury. Because there's no specific articulation of what they're asking forgiveness for. And it just makes things worse. Notice the one who confronted has the duty of pardoning their sinning brother or sister. Forgive him. This is an imperative command. Again, there is no option when there is genuine repentance. And there's no doubt about the repentance here. The word forgive simply means to send away, to give up the debt owed. The two are reconciled, holding nothing against each other like it never existed. There being no thoughts of revenge or getting even or being bitter. This can only be done through a release, forgiving completely. Based on there's actual confession, actual asking of forgiveness. And you forgive, you release. The problem with our human aspect is we don't forget. So the problem is with my mind that stirs up my heart. Your mind is like the key that you stick in your engine and you turn it over. That's the key, your key to your evil heart. The problem is the heart. And so I got to bring my thoughts in captivity. We're going to speak about that. I got to depend on the Lord constantly. 
Now notice in verse 4, the capability to reconcile repeatedly is brought forth next. And it's still for every Christian. Now, if, 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 if one offense is not bad enough, now we're going to get repeated offenses. Now remember, Christian disciple. Picking up your cross daily, denying yourself. None of this can be done on our own ability. Okay? The condition is one of reality, notice. And if this, he sins against you seven times in a day, oh my Lord, are you kidding me? Certainly this would not be the same sin seven times in a day. This would be a crazy proposition. It would be hypocrisy and mockery. These would be seven different sins. The potential is real, not hypocritical or hypothetical, due to our sin nature in the world we live in. And sometimes people are so caught up in themselves, they, they don't realize how, how sinful they are and how, how they just step over everybody and they, because they're, they're just, it's all about them. I venture to say you and I sin more than seven times before we get out the door in the morning. The rabbis used to say, if you forgive three times, you're a perfect man. <laughs> well, Jesus is not so gracious there. Huh? He's the ultimate authority. And uh, he comes to seven here. But in um, Matthew eighteen twenty-two, he says seven times 70, 490 times. Not meaning that if you get the 491, you're done. No. Hopefully you get the idea. Now, who is sufficient for that? Please stand up so we can laugh. I certainly am not. I'm the first to admit to you my difficulty in forgiving. Let me say it again. My impossibility of forgiving. Apart from Christ. The condition of his repentance is also a genuine reality. He says, and seven times in a day return to you saying, I repent. The procedure would still be the same if he did not come to you, as stated here. If he offended you a second time, you'd go to him. Third time, you'd go to him. But here he comes to you, so there's no problem. The innocent person would confront the sinning brother in hope of seeing repentance and reconciliation. That's the whole goal. The whole goal is not to, you know, tear you through or to make you feel bad. It's to confront you to get it right so that we can get this thing over with. That's the whole goal. The repentance is genuine each time. The acknowledgement of sin, the confession of sin, the abandonment of sin. But if someone confronts you Acknowledge the sin, don't water it down, don't lie about it, don't whatever, because you make things worse, and then you break greater trust. Very, very important. The condition of our duty is also a reality. Notice, you shall forgive him. This is not a suggestion or an option again. This is a command, our duty as in verse 3. This is straight across. This passage brings everybody to their knees. Some people you look at and you say, man, you know, these guys, are just, you know, they just, they don't care. They just, you know, they're just so forgiving. No, they just don't care. There's a difference between, between being forgiving and gracious and someone who just doesn't really care. Oh, yeah, don't worry about it. They don't really care. Nothing bothers them. There's a big difference between the two people, okay? Peter played the hypocrite up at Antioch. He was eating with the um, Jewish Christians, or with the Gentile Christians, and then the Jewish Christians came from, from uh, Jerusalem, and he tiptoed over to the whole kosher table. And Paul got on his face and just rebuked him before all. Accountability. Paul was following the Scriptures. No one's beyond it or above it. The manner in which we are to confront one another is critical in humility. Listen, 
Brethren, if a man is overtaken a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6, 1. So there's a difference between you getting somebody's face, say, hey, you rat, I heard you say this to me. You know, or you say, you know what, I, 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 somebody told me this, and there's no way for me to know whether it's true or not, except by you, because they said you said it. So could you verify one with the other? That's a different approach. So in gentleness and humility. But also in privacy, one by one, by twos, by threes, by the church, Ephesians, or um, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 declares. Again, you initiate the innocent party and you go by your brother. And if he acknowledges it, then it's done. Nobody knows about it except you and him. If it ever gets out, one of you have a big mouth. If he doesn't hear you, you go with another brother. Now three know about it. If he repents, only three know. If it gets out, it's easy to find out who has a big mouth. If he doesn't accept it, you go by three, and would you be in the fourth one, whatever, and then you're minimized, and then the church. So you're always minimizing, so it's easy to find out who has the big mouth. Once things are taken care of, they're not mentioned, they're not spread. They're done. Simple. Matthew 18 keeps the house clean and honorable and honest. And bring glory to God. Sometimes Christians don't repent. Then what do I do? Well, I still forgive them. So that that does not cause me to sin. I release you. But my forgiveness, my releasing you on what you did to me without you acknowledging and asking forgiveness does not mean that I believe that we're reconciled. We're not reconciled. Reconciliation means when one member acknowledges sin when he's confronted and he repents from the sin and forgiveness is given, then there's reconciliation. Is that clear? Okay? So if someone doesn't acknowledge their sin and says, no, you're wrong, well, then I, I release you and I lift my heart to God so I don't become hard or bitter and I wait to the day that perhaps we can be reconciled. But there cannot be full reconciliation unless there's an acknowledgement of the sin, a repentance from the sin, and an imparting of forgiveness. Okay? Very clear. If you don't acknowledge your sin before God, you're out of fellowship. He doesn't hear you. Do you think it's any less here? He requires the same thing. In fact, Matthew 18, 17 says, But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. So in other words, there's excommunication at times when someone doesn't acknowledge it. depends on the severity of what it is. Second Corinthians 5.5, 5, we have the young man sleeping with his stepmother. Later on, he repented, he acknowledged it. He was brought back into the church. Simple, reconciled. Now, there is a warning in Hebrews 12, 14 through 17. Um, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. There's a key. There's, there's, there's the source that we draw from, the grace of God. Okay, we don't do this because we're so good. We don't do this because we're so smart. We do this because we're drawn from the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of bread sold his birthright. For you know... That afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There comes a place where people just grieve, 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 where they no longer can, can repent. There's no longer any opportunity. It's done. The matter of forgiveness is the heart of the gospel message, ladies and gentlemen. Christ has forgiven us all our sins. And continues to do so. And I've told you often, no one will ever sin against you as much as you sin against God. So we are debtors. We just don't like it. No, no one's jumping in line to forgive. Oh, can I do it again? Can I get in line again? Nobody's doing that. Our flesh detests it. We want vengeance. I want my pound of flesh. We're to be as Christ. 
bringing us to the end of ourselves, not trusting in our own abilities, but Christ alone. As the response of the disciples will be in the next verse, verse 5. <laughs> they realize they can't do it. Colossians 3, 12 13 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you might think about doing. No, so you must do. I hate that verse. But I have no choice. I either try to do it on my own and suffer the consequences and the misery, or I go to Christ and draw from Him. We need to do good warfare. It begins with the mind. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing, listen, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. When you want to yield to God in forgiveness, the attack is against the knowledge of God, not you. In your mind, you will reason, you will rationale, you do whatever you want, and that will steer your evil heart, and that will just bring a big volcano, and that will end up in a big explosion, and explosions bring destruction. Bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Having the full armor on, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. The motive of forgiveness is love and that restores from sin. So it is confidential and caring. Love will cover a multitude of sins, First Peter 1, 4, 8 says. First Peter 4, 8. He's quoting Proverbs um, 10, 12. Listen to James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, he's talking to believers, someone has been deceived, straight, has wondered from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death, eternal death, and cover a multitude of sins. In other words, when you restore him, you bring him back, you don't go tell everybody what you, he came back from. You don't put it in your blog. I hate blogs. How do people, don't people have lives? The gossip columns. Place to vent your own stupidity. Anybody can say anything. Slander, lies, misinformation, half-truths. The air is filled with it. The internet is full of it. Love recognizes believers will fail severely at times. Noah, after the judgment of the whole world, planted a vineyard and got drunk and laid there naked. Abraham lied about his wife to Pharaoh, saying he was, she was his sister. David committed adultery and killed Uriah. Devastating. Yet when there's true repentance, there's to be true forgiveness. Now, the consequences don't go away. They remain. So you've got to draw from the grace of God to live with the consequence honorably to the glory of God, owning up to it. The important thing is that we have some discretion. We have some self-respect. Today, I think the church today thinks that the have you ever been sitting next to somebody where just talking to them five minutes and they've given you a lifetime of all their stuff and you're going, there's no, I mean, there's no need for all that. Often people ask me because they hear my brother's testimony. What were you saved from? Same thing. Now, what's your question about the Bible? Can you imagine what a juicy story Paul could have given us? Now, there's a place for testimony. But it seems the church is moving more to emotionalism and testimonials lately. More and more. Instead of teaching the Word of God. That's no good. 
The command to forgive believers is the heart of the gospel. Notice thirdly, verse 5 and 6, the need to live out our faith. The petition was due to the recognition of their human inability for continuous forgiveness of a Christian. Verse 5 here. The particular ones petitioning Jesus are the twelve, they're called apostles now. The first were made disciples by Jesus. Secondly, they were made apostles after an entire night in prayer in Luke 6, 12 through 16. The twelve would be the ones to carry on the work of Jesus. These are lessons that are very important because they were going to be under great persecution. The twelve rightly called Jesus Lord, Curios, Master, the one over their lives, the one to obey. The twelve apostles saw their bankruptcy to meet the need of not bringing offenses to anyone and forgive seven times. So they asked Jesus, increase our faith. Their seeming petition is an imperative command in the Greek. That's a contradiction. You don't command Jesus. <laughs> he commands you. They thought all they needed was for Jesus to increase their faith. Isn't that the way we think? You know, I, I've got, I got some debt. I need more money. And you get more money and you get more debt. Now you're in worse shape than you were before. So they figure, Lord, we need more faith. See, reason will say, if I have more faith, I can do greater things. We often hear this type of teaching through the positive confession movement as they arrogantly boast about how much faith they have being healthy and wealthy and evidence of their faith. How arrogant is that and how unscriptural is that? Paul says, those who say godliness is gain, depart from them. Get away from them. Now notice the instruction of Jesus was that they did not need more faith. But just to use what they had been given to obey. To be enabled. Jesus stated the condition of reality. Listen. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, the mustard seed, as you know, and especially in those days, was known as the smallest of seed. And it illustrates the power of faith. It had nothing to do with the amount or the size of faith. They were thinking more. Jesus says, no. Mustard seed. This was to encourage them. In what had already been given to them. What had been given to them was sufficient for what God would ask them to do. They needed to live out their faith. Jesus stated the condition of unreality. Next, listen. You can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea. And it would obey you. This again is not teaching that the apostles at will could do such a thing if they chose to. The mulberry tree, about 30 feet average, the deep roots, it would be a human impossibility and that's the point. This can only be done supernaturally. This is teaching that if Jesus directed them to do so, and they depended on him, he would do it. When Jesus does whatever it is through us, the tendency is we think it's because of us. But it's God acting as we trust him to do what he said he was going to do or wanted us to be part of doing. Yet faith was able to plant it in the CSS if God directed them. And they did not doubt or act in unbelief. Matthew uses a mountain instead of the mulberry tree in Matthew 17, 20 through 21. And the key is that faith is supernatural, dependent and obedient to the Lord Jesus, who will enable us. 
You see, they were not to trust themselves or to think that everything can be solved and remedied with more faith. <laughs> but rather in making use of the little faith that they did have. The key was not in the quantity of faith, but rather in the quality of faith. I think back when God gave us this building in 1986. We were in a cockroach-infested theater. We had about, about 500 people. And God dwindled us down to 300, like Gideon. And he said, now I can give you the building because no one can boast. <laughs> and he gave us this building. We walked in, looked at it. We just felt the Lord was doing it. We just trusted him. In 94, we, through the, uh, a year after that, we had the Whittier earthquake, remember, and cracked everything. There was a little Gothic church there where the Nazarene started here where the gym is, and it cracked it, so we couldn't use it. And in 1994, we decided to um, tear it down and, and re-engineer the basement and everything for compaction and then to build a gym. We believe the Lord was leading us. Before the gym, when it was done and we put the key in, it was paid cash. No police, no letters, no cookie sales, no sad stories. Just doing what I do right now. Just teach and that's it and pray. Now, I didn't do that. God did that. No one has anything to boast about. But we are the richer for it. Because we've seen God work in a way that we can never work. <laughs> Too often we are uh, trusting ourselves to do what Jesus commands us to do. We depend on our experience in life alone rather than the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We depend on our education rather than the Word of God, His guidance and His wisdom. We trust in our success of the past instead of seeking Jesus for the new way and the new manners in which He wants to work in us and through us. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me in Philippians 4.13. At other times, we're trying to figure things out. So, we ask people their opinion, their advice. We ask counsel for here, counsel for there. We're racking our brain. We're full of anxiety. Rather than just praying and waiting upon the Lord for Him to speak to us very, very clearly. You see, we'll do anything and everything and the last thing say, okay, well, let's pray. When it should be the first thing. You see, we would rather know what a person thinks we should do than God. The church is full of counseling. We have very little counseling here. Very little counseling. The instruction comes from the pulpit. And you guys go to God. That doesn't mean we don't sit down and talk with you. And I don't call the council, just talk with you. But it's very minimal here. The majority of churches, they're filled up with council. Their calendars are filled up all, all month long. How do they get anything done? Proverbs or Psalms 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Paul said, Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpass all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6 or 7. When I don't do that, then I'm anxious. When I don't do that, I'm asking your opinion. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, everything else. I have to go to God. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brother in the world. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. And so we must be alert. We must know the word of God. We must put on the mind of Christ. See, the believer's life is that of faith based on what God has revealed in his word. Nothing else. Today, the church is moving away from the word of God. To experience, to subjectivism, to marketing, to technology, 
And it's moving away from the Word. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1 1 says. But without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, Hebrews 11.6. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out the place, Hebrews 11.8 tells us. By faith um, he, he pursued the country that he was promised, by faith, Sarah was able to conceive. By faith, all these professed that they were pilgrims and sojourners on the earth. The hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Seeing him who was invisible. The need to live out our faith as believers is the test of the gospel. Every day. So the need to live out the faith as believers is the test of the gospel. Notice fourth and last comes the parable. It's the light, it's the illustration. The danger of pride in serving. The parable of the improbable servant is a comparison reminding the apostles and believers they owe all to Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus begins the parable with a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer in the negative, as we've seen before in parables. He addresses each individual. And which of you, he confronts them. He puts each person in the position of master. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep? The word servant is doulos, servant by choice. It comes from the Old Testament. After the sixth year, you would release the seventh. If you wanted to serve your master for life, then he would take you to the door of his house, put your ear by the, uh, by the post, and put a hole in your ear, put an earring, and you were a bond servant. This is used for Jesus, used for Paul. It's supposed to be used for you and I. He painted a scenario, notice, which would be unthinkable and absurd. Which of you will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? No. Each of them is to say, not me. That's the proper answer, the only answer. And then Jesus made a second rhetorical question with another two obvious answers, now in the positive, in verse 8. He portrayed the rightful, superior position of the master but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? Yes. This is the right and honorable thing to do as a servant. And then he portrayed the rightful position of submission of the servant. And afterwards, you will eat and drink? Yes. This is the right and respectful thing to do. Now, if you're politically correct and you're into the social justice, this is the world of Rome, 600,000 slaves. Jesus is using the cultural illustration of reality. He's not approving slaves, okay? So, just a footnote. Verse 9, Jesus declared a third rhetorical question again with the obvious answer now in the negative. He portrays the... Ridiculous possibility. Does he thank that servant because he did the thing that were commanded him? He proclaims the only answer. I think not. So Jesus makes the application of the parable, the punchline, as we've seen many times. It's got a central message. They were bondservants of Jesus. So he says, so likewise you... It's like the servant. It's emphatic. They were to obey him completely when you have done all these things which you are commanded. They were not to think themselves as deserving special treatment by God. But they weren't the hottest things as ice cream. They were not to think that God was in their debt. They were to declare... Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. The word unprofitable 
means useless, good for nothing. I like that. It matches exactly what the scriptures declare about man and his heart. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament for the servant who buried his talent rather than putting it in the bank for interest in Matthew 25, 30. The idea is that there is no room for pride and, and an attitude of meriting anything. It has all been given to us by Jesus Christ, our Master. And He's the Master, and we are the servants. And it is right that we do what He's commanded. And after we end up doing what He told us to do, we're to say, I am an unprofitable servant. Wow. That's kind of strange theology in many churches today. <laughs> now the parable of the unprofitable servant illustrates how to avoid the perils of the three preceding teachings in service of the gospel by obeying Jesus. The parable is a comparison. Remember they compare a contrast. Being a humble servant, not being ensnared by the attempts of people to not follow Jesus or offending others. If you obey the Lord, you're going to escape this. Verse 1 and 2. Being a forgiving servant, you are faithful to forgive Christians repeatedly when needed. And as necessary. Verse 3 and 4. Being a dependent and obedient servant of Jesus, you obey in faith to see the impossible take place. Verse 5 and 6. John the Baptist says, I must increase, or he must increase and I must decrease. In John 3.30. That's the principle of a Christian and a disciple. We're to have the mind of Christ constantly. Let this mind be in you which is in Christ Jesus. Who didn't take it robbery to be equal with God. But he emptied himself of his own um, glory. Not his deity. And he took on the form of a servant. And he was obedient to the death of the cross. Philippians 2. 5 through 8. That's to be our mind. No other mind. There's nothing but servant leadership. Nothing but servants in the church of Jesus Christ. We're to know we are serving Christ, not ourselves. Listen to Paul when he was arrested by Jesus there on the road to Damascus. Uh, and, and Jesus rebukes him, telling him that he's persecuting the believers. So he's really uh, persecuting Jesus. And, and Paul says, um, um, Lord, what do you want me to do? Acts 9, 5 through 6. We serve the Lord. We go from serving ourselves to serving the Lord. That's what we do. We're to never forget that we owe all to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of his mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required that a steward, that one be found faithful. And how faithful servants we've seen through the years we have married, buried a whole bunch of them already. I think of Pete Mornay, Hank Marquez, the Vanden Mullers, and many others. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you indeed received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? First Corinthians 4, 7. God has put this treasure in the earthen vessel that the power and excellence may be a, and glory may be of God and not of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. The glory goes to God. In the most difficult situations of life, listen God's response to you. Listen carefully as Paul is asking the Lord to take this tent stake away from him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Hmm. The danger of pride in serving for believers is forgetting the grace of the gospel. And so Jesus has taught his disciples these four lessons for effective service to him in the preaching of the gospel. We've got to be doers in these things. These are tough things. These are impossible things on our own. 
The warning against offenses is from turning believers away from the gospel, a very severe crime. The command to forgive believers is the heart of the gospel. You can't get away from it. The need to live out our faith as believers is the test of the gospel. I take it every day, the test. The danger of pride in serving for believers is forgetting the grace of the gospel. I've got to remember. Lord, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your grace. Lord, we just pray for just all of us, Lord, the situations that we may find ourselves in, the situations that will come into our lives. The Lord, we will look to you and to just depend upon you, Lord. We thank you for your grace over this church, each of us, Lord, all that you've done, and we pray for continued servants to just serve you, Lord, and that we might be an example to those around us and that we might not be a stumbling to anybody. And the Lord, we would always be there to offer your forgiveness. As you're praying, if you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and died for your sins, you can ask him right now and he will forgive you. And he will give you a brand new heart, a brand new mind, eternal life. And cast your sins as far as these as the west. This is your prayer to him right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.